Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guests today on Research Briefs are Dr. Devlin Monfort, Assistant Professor in the School of Chemical, Biological, and Environmental Engineering at Oregon State University, and Dr. Jeffrey Herman, Teaching Assistant Professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I've had the pleasure, and it really is a pleasure, to work with Devlin and Jeffrey in past research projects, and they developed a new approach to analyzing student transcripts called novice-led thematic analysis. Sometimes we might lapse into calling this NLTA, but we will probably keep calling it novice-led thematic analysis. And that's what I'd like them to speak about today. So Devlin and Jeffrey, welcome to Research Briefs. Hi. Thank you for having us. Yes. Um, to start out as a bit of an introduction to the listeners, can you each briefly tell us a little bit about your pathway into engineering education? And Devlin, would you like to start off? Yeah. I think my primary pathway was to another one of your guests, I think, coming up. Um, I, in my engineering undergrad education, I, my senior design instructor was Shane Brown, and he... Uh, kind of poked me <laughs> in ways that were, were helpful. Uh, he didn't let me get away with things that other people did. That was intriguing. But I wanted to work with him over the summer, and we had a little wastewater treatment project that fell through. And he kind of said, well, I have this other stuff going on. Do you want to try that? And I did, and it was exciting and uh, reminded me of everything that I missed in the kind of purely engineering world I'd been in for a while. So I just kept doing that. Cool. And you were at Washington State then, is that right? Yeah. Yes. And so now you've moved a little bit south to Oregon State? Just a little, yeah. Just a little. And and continuing to do education, uh, engineering education research there, correct? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so, Jeffrey, do you want to say a little bit now about how you got into engineering education research? Absolutely. Um, so my my heart transition came in grad school when I was a TA for a course and was completely mystified by how students weren't learning from the excellent explanations and sheer brilliance in the classroom. Um, so I happened to be talking with another person who had been a TA for the course who was currently doing research with Michael Louie about what students find hard and why students struggle to learn computer architecture concepts. And I pretty much emailed Michael within a few days and saying, this sounds really cool. I don't understand why students are struggling in my course. I'd love to learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, that just kind of began the, the process. And then within a few weeks, we were like, I was working with Michael and Craig Zillis on a project that eventually became my uh, PhD dissertation looking at um, developing assessment tools to measure students' learning in computer architecture and and that was at Illinois, and you are still there, correct? 
year now. Yes. So you didn't you didn't move a state over like like uh, Devlin did, but doing good work at, at Illinois. So we want to talk again today about n novice led thematic analysis. So first of all, what is that, Jeffrey? I think you were going to be prepared to explain it. Yeah. So novice led thematic analysis is. I mean, it shares many of the same underpinnings of thematic analysis and other qualitative approaches, and that. One of the core things that we're trying to do is to bring our biases, our prior beliefs out to the surface and to challenge our assumptions about what is happening in the minds and perspectives of other people. And so one of the things that kind of came out of it is that, well, just in terms of the method, what we found was that it was often very provocative to have a content knowledge expert and a content knowledge novice analyzing student transcripts as they were discussing and reasoning about problems in their domain. Um, and the, the idea of what's called novice-led is that the novice um, is the one who takes the reins on saying, hey, here's what I think is happening, here's what I think is the interpretation, and it's really until the novice is satisfied with the interpretation, with the observations, with the coding, with the themes, that we move on, that the expert has to take the back seat and be um, not be the driver of saying, like, oh, well, I think this is what's happening in the novice. Like, okay, whatever. Um, and so having giving the novice that power really forced the dynamic to say, is what, we, is what we're seeing here really born from the data or from our prior experiences mm -hmm. um, in the classroom or whatever it might be? Um, and so that was, that's the core of the, the, the framing of the method, what we were trying to do. So... If, if I may paraphrase and tell me if, if I'm getting this correctly then, the big difference between what you did and what another pair of people doing coding might be is that you were sure that there was a person that was m much more naive about the concepts than the other person was really the content expert and that the person that was the novice was the one who had to be okay with the explanation. Yeah, and, and I think try to balance out, I don't know if the power relationship is the right word, but just it's very easy to say, like, you have an expert saying, well, this is what's happening, the person, and the person who has less content knowledge might be like, oh, okay. Uh-huh, um, uh -huh. Versus saying, no, you, you as the novice have to be satisfied. Uh-huh. Um, and you, you have the right to speak up and challenge the content knowledge expert. I want to then bring up the phase, uh, the, the next phase into this and explain to our listeners some more background about what this project was that you were working on and, and how this idea came about. And I think, Devlin, you were going to lead off with that. Yeah. The project was organized around uh, studying conceptual change. And I don't remember where the, the proposal idea came from, but... Uh, a key part of it was moving beyond a single course or discipline. A lot of conceptual change research, partly because of the depths of um, content area expertise needed, is focused on like the first half of this 
I brought my data and Jeffrey brought his data and then there was some more. And um, in early conversations, we, you kind of, we kind of got into these circular loops where I, we'd see something in the transcript that the person who hadn't already analyzed it would see something and the expert would kind of immediately have a response, or, oh yeah, here's what's happening there, this is the context for that, you don't know. It wasn't as productive as we were hoping. And as I remember, I think we just said, hey, let's try next week. Uh, we each analyze something that we're not expert in and then give the floor to the novice to kind of lead the way. And as we went through that process in the coming weeks, um, the, the possible strength of it kind of came out in that the uh, content novice was also kind of a context novice. So they would, like I would be reading about Jeffrey's digital logic interviews and they would switch between vocab that Jeffrey is completely synonymous or um, it's something that he's familiar hearing those two words and it would really catch me and we would have to stick to the data to decide whether that was an important distinction or not. So having the novice lead the way helped us um, rely primarily on the actual data that we have instead of the interpretations and context that we bring to it, which is a strength to know all that much about what's going on in the course, but for this particular analysis, it was very helpful to have that check in place. Mm -hmm. I think that's all came about. And Jeffrey, I know you have one particular example of something that Devlin saw that was really eye-opening for you. Yeah, so I think one of the things that really crystallized this approach as being just something useful was, um, well, let me say, like, Devlin's an incredibly intelligent person that I respect with, like, as just being just this amazing colleague that I got to work with. And so that changed the dynamic for me into a degree of being like, okay, if he thinks something and he's dealing with something, it's like, it's not because he's not paying attention, he's trying his hardest. And, that, and so when we were, like, working through one of the interviews, one of the concepts that we have in logic is conditionals. Um, and particularly what's called the bi-directional conditional, where the phrase if and only if means something distinct to a logician that's different from everyday language. Because we can say if, like, you may cross the street if and only if you look both ways first. The and only if is just kind of like an emotional emphatic to say, like, yes, this is really, I really mean that you need to look both ways. But it's very, it, it doesn't really add any new, new meaning to the sentence. And this is a realization I never would have had if not working with Devlin, where he would, he would be reading the transcripts or reading the prompts and he would leave off the word and only if. <laughs> like it was just something he would naturally be like, wait, that's not what the problem says. He's like, no. And then he would read it again and, and like it's like happening automatically. Mm -hmm. And that realization, like, and he's like, I'm like, wait, why do you keep not saying? He's like, well, it doesn't mean anything. And I was like, no, it doesn't. Like, and so the ability to see that and just having a very an intelligent, earnest person to do something. And the same thing that essentially what the students were doing in the interviews. But then he's able to wait, be way more metacognitive and reflective about what he was doing. And so he, as he explains, like, well, just like 
he's the one who kind of gave me that language of it's an emphatic. It's just emotionally saying, yes, I really mean this conditional. Mm-hmm. Um, which is something I could never have come up with because in my brain it is it is a set of words that has meaning um, and not just emotion to it. And so being able to have that outsider analyzing data from my discipline helped helped us get closer to the mind of the novice that we were trying to analyze. So, so what, what was happening then is you as an expert, you were realizing those words were really had incredible meaning, but that Devlin as the novice in the field was really behaving in a way that the students do. And, and that really gave you insight because you still respected his intelligence and it wasn't just that he wasn't trying, he was, this is a really bright guy huh, maybe something else is going on here that I'm not taking into account. Yeah, and we were able to engage in a much longer back and forth, like, what's going on? Why do you, like, here? And like I said, he's able to, like, be extraordinarily metacognitive about, like, what am I doing? Why am I doing that? Like, what what assumptions am I bringing to this text? Uh And I would would never have, I would, I mean, it would never have occurred to me after, like, I mean, it didn't occur to me after having already analyzed those interviews and having published on those interviews that that's what students were doing. Right, right. Um, and so it was a new insight that came out from working with someone not from the field. I was just reading an article, I don't even remember where now, not just in the popular press, not a, a research article, that talked about this, um, something like a, semester at sea or something of that uh, fashion where there were several experts, different professors in different fields that were traveling together. And so the astronomer would like sit on, in on the geology class and the geologist would sit in on the astronomy class. And they were beginning to say something like you're noticing of being able to have those outsider's eyes there with yet somebody who is really trained in science was just a, a way to freshly see their own discipline. Um, and and I, was just, I was excited to see that, knowing that I was going to talk to you two today, that this was yet another example of that. Um, so we've talked a little bit about how the method worked with the, the one example um, and how you've looked at, at interviews in a different way. What might Looking back now, what might you do differently um, if somebody was just um, starting to do this, or if you're doing it again, what would you do differently than as you just stumbled upon this, than you did when you just stumbled upon it? I think one thing we talked about is um, in the moment of trying to produce a a paper or come to some sort of analytical confident statement, we didn't think to record the process much. Um, and that would have been, it could have been, I think, really useful to actually see what are the specific things, other than the ones that we happen to remember, what are the things that we got stuck on and how did the other person eventually move us into another understanding. Um, and I think also it would just be good to have sort of uh, a lap time. How long does it take for 
people who were spending um, their full workout, but well, I guess it wasn't our full workout, but, but you know, 15, 20 hours a week trying to learn these concepts that we asked uh, sophomores to learn a couple hours a week. Right. Um, how long did it actually take us? That would be helpful to know. So this process itself now, reflecting upon it, of having this dialogue about the concepts between the content expert and the, the novice would, would be actually a source of data itself, is I think what you're saying. And you didn't realize that at the time. Yeah, I mean, that whole exchange that I just described, I mean, that felt like, in some respects, it's almost like doing a positive interview with someone who's just beginning to grasp with the content and so it's but this person is more bought into explaining their reasoning and is a little more trained in explaining their reasoning than your typical novice is. Right, right. Um, and so they're they're pouring out tons and tons of data about like, oh, this is an observation I just had or a realization I just had or in a way that's like super hyper real time mm -hmm. <laughs> um, than just even what you can get from a, a good qualitative interview generally. So it was, it was really fun from that perspective. Uh -huh. Just uh -huh. a new ideas. Yeah. There's yeah. um and it's sort of a, I can't remember what this quote is from, but making the familiar unfamiliar. Right. Just a a quick insight into um some of the material that I was familiar with that I was showing Jeffrey is mechanics and materials or solid mechanics. And that whole course uh, only goes from, really it only includes, so it basically tries to analyze how objects react to forces. And uh, when you come into it, you think, okay, I'm going to learn about how things break or how they bend. And sort of in the first 30 seconds, we say, no, actually you're not. We're just going to be looking at tiny, tiny invisible movements, and we're going to be doing a lot of calculus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that takes more than 30 seconds to understand why we might do it that way, what the history of it is, where it's going to fit into the other courses, uh -huh. um, and and then just sort of emotionally how we, how civil engineers or academic undergraduate programs treat this content. Um, and it's something that you would never include in a class, but if, if you're talking to a colleague and you have the time, and they say, well, what, what would happen if you kept pushing and it breaks? And you go, I don't know, that's not a good question. <laughs> and like, yeah, it is. <laughs> Why can't you tell me? Uh huh. Uh huh. It, it's always yeah, so, so fun to look that, at things new. Kind of in line with what Devlin has said of just like having a better record of what did we talk about? One thing which I, I've been doing with some of my grad students now since I, I'm continuing to use the method um, as I do other, uh, other studies, and it's been fun because we've been intentionally trying to keep audit trails say like hey what did we talk about what hypothesis did we come up with what what weird discussion did we have today that was just you trying to understand what the heck are we talking about um and so it's just been i can even see in just the way we've written papers like papers i was writing in 2011 how i would describe a concept has changed in part because of like realization of like oh there's so much implicit information that i have that i've never had to articulate until i having a persistent grad student who do, does great qualitative research but doesn't know the discipline and is just like, but why? But 
Uh-huh. <laughs> like, tell me why I'm wrong. I don't get it. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And being incessantly curious. Um, so it's been, so we, we've been trying to be better about collecting those audit trails to better understand, okay, what, what happened? How did we change in our own understanding of what we were analyzing? So, Jeffrey, you've spoken about how you've continued to use this. Uh, Devlin, do you have examples of of how you've used this method um, rec more recently? Um, yeah. Kind of moving into trying to study engineering practice as a, as a social practice. Um, and it, it kind of two directions. So I'm kind of a novice about engineering practice. Um, so taking that approach, working with uh, practicing engineers or um, researchers that have been more embedded in that context has been helpful. It's saying it is worth our time for you to explain these things to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and and then the other direction, I, I work with um, social scientists trying to, I mean, like trying to learn discourse analysis, for example, um, work with somebody who does that. And they kind of have sometimes um, say, oh, well, I don't understand the engineering content, so I can't look at those interviews with you or something. Um, so I kind of use this method to frame, yeah, you can. I think um, it's helpful, and there are things that I skim over and ignore that are important, and we should dig back into them, um, and, it, and it's valuable. It's not time-wasted translating or something. It's a valuable part of the analysis to verbalize and make explicit um, why I skip some things or, or particularly focus on other things. Like it's, I, I'm always reminded, I mean, I've, I've seen it enough times now that I kind of remember, but often you show somebody a transcript of a student working and if they're not in an engineering context or uh, not really in sort of STEM undergrad right now, they're surprised that we talk about letters all the time. We're saying, oh, well, V will increase when A decreases mm -hmm. because uh, P goes up. And they're like, you're speaking nonsense. <laughs> yeah. Dang, we, li we literally hear velocity, area, and pressure when the people are saying V, A, and P. Mm-hmm. Or sigma, but then there's some letters that we don't. K is a mystery. It can be anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all those things, and they're and and partly they're saying uh, this is confusing. And you go, yeah, it is. I forgot about that. Not only is the concept confusing, but um, the way that we navigate it can be its own challenge. I'm I'm sitting here just thinking of just of how this how fascinating this is to really start to get into the head of the learner and how much we forget what it's like to learn it the first time. Uh, it's very very intriguing. I think a, I think a key of it um, was that how it developed the way it did was Jeffrey and I um, were both committed to that and pushing the other person. To mm -hmm. do that, to, mm -hmm. to humanize and respect the learner, and then to kind of almost de-prestige a little bit the way that we get used to thinking about it. Um, because so often someone, uh, Jeffrey would say, why is it that way, or 
I think yeah, we're going to add something. Similar, like, it's similar to what Evelyn was talking about, this whole like variables thing, how we speak. I've had similar experiences where I've had a mechanical engineer where things, you know, A is acceleration, and, and, and B is stress, or, I'm sorry, shear force, clearly not the nods on that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's for moments, and all, like, like, each letter has a variable assigned to it that we kind of know across context, whereas in computing, we can just name variables whatever we want. Uh-huh. And this weirdness of how we don't like, and it was weird for her. Like, wait, so you just don't like, wait, well, the variable isn't this. It's like, no, you can use whatever you want. We just have some loose conventions and recommendations, but no one follows those. Um, and so, just how reified certain things are in different disciplines, and like, oh wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> we do. There, there, are, there are all these little subtle things we do that we have no idea we're doing until someone asks. Right, right. And that you're open to them asking and that you respect their questions as valid mm-hmm. questions, right? Yeah, or it's yeah. like, do you ask me that same question? Like, just do it. This right, way. right. <laughs> um, right. Versus, oh, that is weird. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, my final question for you is the question I like to ask all the guests, and that is, um, what advice you would have for people who are wanting to develop new methods, who maybe feel the thing that they're doing doesn't meet their needs, um, and, and what you, they could learn from your example to try something different. So what would you both say about that? What would be your, kind of your closing advice for uh, people listening to this? So I think we talked about this before. Pair up with a rock star and let them cover you. So we had you and Shane as our advisors, and so we you know ultimately it was like, hey, if they're okay with what we're doing, we're fine. But I know that's not always going to be the case, but it definitely did help. Mm-hmm. Um, working closely with people who are you know known, who are with experience. I think this is something any new researcher should be doing is is staying connected to people who can help check them, help them have a confidant, have an mentor, or advisor to say. Hey, does this make sense? Bounce mm-hmm. it off them, build your confidence with them, um, and don't be too worried about perception because you can then just turn to this person, hey, am I popping a rocker? Am I, am I doing something that makes sense? Is this defensible? Is this reasonable? Mm-hmm. You're able to have that with you as your advisors. Um, so that's always helpful. Um, and then I think, kind of going back to the description I started with, is Research methods are there in large part because we as humans love to see patterns or normality where it may not actually exist. Mm-hmm. And so getting back to like, what is a good research method? And not just thinking like, oh, a method is this step one, step two, step three, but it's more like, how do I structure my observations and my tests, whatever it might be, so that I don't buy into my own assumptions? And so you're doing to modify your research method is getting back to those core things of what makes good research good research. It's a reasonable thing to do. Um, and so those are 
Uh-huh, uh-huh. So have somebody that can kind of protect you as you're doing new things that uh, you feel, you know, give you safety to do it. And then keep going back to the core principles of why you're doing it in the first place, right? Devlin, do you have anything you want to um, say about that question of advice for people? Um, yeah, of course. I never <laughs> turned on the opportunity to give advice. Buy um, low, sell high. No. <laughs> I think <laughs> a, a key part to me was finding uh, research articles, particularly in education, uh, cognitive science, where um, where the genre of the writing in those fields is a little more personal and you're allowed to share some affect. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's a couple of articles where, where somebody is saying very humbly, I think this is a better way to do it for these reasons. Take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm much more comfortable with that than a sort of com commercialized or, or uh, product-based innovation thing like uh, I'm gonna go define the the Montford Herman Strebler method and gonna sweep the nation um, instead of just thinking what do I what do I want to accomplish and uh, how can I communicate that to a particular audience and I kind of think anyone who's using a method even if they are trying to, to use a recipe are making it up again on their own. Uh, so it's, I think it's much more important to talk about why and how you're trying to do things rather than what you actually do. So mm -hmm. instead of here's, here's how you, here's the inoculant you take to make sure that you're not biased. It's like, well, what do we really mean by bias and what would, what would it look like if we were, what would it look like if we weren't? I think, I think there's a lot of value in the more abstract conversations and as a field we tend to only discuss the, the actual action without their kind of attending meaning and reasoning. Mm -hmm. Yes, they are human beings create the methods, right? They're not something that has come down on golden tablets. They're, right. yeah. There are the golden tablet methods. Those are <laughs> <laughs> mostly they, they <laughs> Well, and I think once you start publishing more, you start realizing no one just actually agrees on how you should report things. I mean, I think in the past week I've had like 15 different conversations about what effect sizes mean uh -huh. <laughs> and whether we should use them or is it like everything is, there's, there's merits and demerits to pretty much anything you can do in research and it's being honest about what was good and what was bad about the approach we took is, is a useful mindset and attitude to have Yes. Well, thank you so much for being with us. I remembered why I love working with you two. You're both so smart and honest and thoughtful, and we even got in a giggle here and there, which we used to do a lot of. Um, and I, I hope that your example and your story inspires other people, and I, I'm happy that I got to share both of you with a wider audience. So thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. It was fun.
Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.